Please turn with me once again to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 this morning. Over the past six weeks, we've been here in the book of 1 Corinthians studying what God says through the Apostle Paul about the grace gifts, as we're calling them. He gives to his church for their good and for his glory. So we've seen the person and the power behind the gifts, the Holy Spirit, at the very first part of chapter 12. We saw that. We saw the purpose of the, the, the gifts, the common good. We took a couple weeks then to look at a little bit of the list in chapter 12, verses 8 through 10, and then we're encouraged by Paul to delight in the distributed grace of God throughout the body of Christ last week in chapter 13. The first half, we saw that Paul declares the preeminence of love over the gifts, and he exhorts us as a church to pursue love above all as we use the gifts to serve the body and exalt Christ. Now we are coming to the last half of chapter 13 where Paul continues his defense of love as the better way. And in doing so, he also answers a question that really is at the center of the ongoing debate over grace gifts, spiritual gifts. That is, when will the gifts cease to exist? And so he answers that question here at the end of chapter 13 as he makes this defense for love being a better way. So let's listen in to what God says through his servant Paul, starting here in verse 8. The passage is actually going to be on the screen as well if for some reason you don't have a Bible with you and need to follow along with us. Verse 8 reads, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is God's word for us today, the basis for what we believe, the norm for how we live out our faith. And so as we do each week, let's ask him to bless this time before we dive in this morning. Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful that it still speaks to us today. Even though this was written to many, uh, so many years ago to different people in a different context, we know that through your son, Jesus Christ, it applies to us, that we can take it, we can think about it deeply, we can then apply it to our lives. It will change us, transform us, so that we are more like your Son, Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as we exalt in the promises of Jesus, we exalt in this promise that we see here of the coming day when he reigns forever. God, I pray that you would stir us, that you would not only answer this question about the gifts and when they cease, but more importantly, God, that you would grow our confidence and hope that you will come again to be with us. And so, God, I pray that you would do that for your glory and for our joy in you. In your name, amen. Expiration dates are pretty important. At least, if you're like me, that's what you think. Uh, I think 
expiration dates are pretty important. I'm one of those people that's always looking at the expiration date on the back of the containers on food. Megan thinks I'm a little paranoid about expiration dates, and so she makes fun of me for doing that, but expiration dates are there for a reason, aren't they? I mean, there's a reason they're on the back of the container. No one wants to be that person that finds out the milk has already expired as they're swallowing that sour, lumpy, mucus-like substance, right? At that point, not only do you question your life, but you're also wishing you would have been more like me, right? Man, can I be more like Dan and care about expiration dates? See, knowing when something expires is important. It influences how you're going to use whatever it is, that milk, the sour cream, or maybe that's the milk that just has already gone by bad. Meat, whatever it is, knowing when it's no longer a valid substance to consume or use is helpful. And when you know that the time is coming up, you usually go about using up that item as fast as possible. Whether or not you want meat for dinner, you're going to grill it up. Whether you want that extra bowl of cereal, that milk is there, it's going to be old tomorrow, and so you pour another bowl of cereal for yourself. Knowing the expiration date impacts how and when you use something. Well, here at the end of chapter 13, while Paul is wrapping up his case for the superiority of love as the entire way of life for the believer, he does so by giving us the expiration date, you could say, for these grace gifts. He's instructing the church in Corinth on. And as he does, he's not only emphasizing the endlessness of love, but I believe he also wants the church in Corinth and us today to rightly understand the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit within the church. For as we've already seen so far in our study, this church in Corinth has a major problem, a major problem with their use of the gifts. They've been using these gifts for self-importance, self-promotion rather than the good of others. They've used them to make themselves famous rather than than for the fame of Jesus Christ. And so they need to be corrected, first of all, on their love for one another. But since Paul knows the propensity of the human heart to swing the pendulum the other way, he also knows that they need to be reminded that the gifts empowered by the Spirit are still to be practiced. So he doesn't just say here in chapter 13, okay, you're getting the gifts wrong, so lay those gifts aside and just start loving one another. No, he says, use the gifts in love, for they are the way for you to build up one another and show love for one another. So you see what he's doing here. He's not replacing the gifts with love. Rather, he's injecting the gifts with love. And then, because this church in Corinth had also had another problem, which was a over-realized eschatology. That's a big word. It means the end times. That is, in chapter 4, we read that they had come to believe that they had actually received more of the blessings of the future than anyone else. And so Paul reminds them throughout this book not only to pursue love, but also that there's a tension between, as D.A. Carson notes, already an already view of what God has done, and a not yet view of what he still has to do. They need to understand that God is still going to come one day, but yet he's still 
already working. You see, as Paul and the rest of the New Testament authors teach, already the kingdom has dawned and the Messiah is reigning. Already the crucial victory has been won by Christ at the cross. Already the final resurrection of the dead has begun in the resurrection of Jesus. Already the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the church as the down payment of the promised inheritance and the first fruits of that eschatological harvest of blessing, writes D.A. Carson. Nevertheless, the kingdom has not yet come in its consummated fullness. Death still exercises formidable powers. Sin must be overcome, and opposing powers of darkness war against us with savage ferocity. The new heaven and the new earth have not yet put in an an appearance. But as Carson concludes, maintaining a balance between the already and not yet is crucial to the church's maturity. So basically what's happening here was that there are those within this church who are saying that their gifting was evidence that they were more blessed than anyone else. That the not yet had come, and so their speaking in tongues specifically was proof that they were extremely blessed by God. And they thought, you could say, they were living their best life now. But Paul wants them to understand that their best life is yet to come that they are living presently in this tension of the already and not yet, and that the presence of these grace gifts God has graciously given to them was evidence of this. As they were practiced in love, these gifts were demonstrations of what God had already done. They are evidence that the kingdom of God had come and broken in, but also as they practiced the gifts in love, they were also testifying to what was yet to come to what God will one day do when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Christ is Lord and he reigns in his fullness. And so it's in these verses in front of us this morning that I believe Paul clarifies this truth for the church in Corinth and for us today, that God gives his grace gifts to us, yes, for our good and his glory until he comes again that God gives his gifts to us for our good and his glory until he comes again. What Paul teaches us here is that while we await the fullness of God's kingdom to come in the future, we are gifted with manifestations of that kingdom to employ in love for the good of the church and the fame of Jesus, and we're to do that today. In other words, knowing the expiration date of these gifts, ought to cause us then to pursue them all the more in love because we know that these gifts are but shadows of the true beauty that's to come when Christ returns. And so Sam Storm states this, I'm persuaded that we will never be of much use in this life until we've developed a healthy obsession with the next. Our only hope for satisfaction of soul Our only hope for joy of heart in this life comes from looking intently at what we can't see. So we must take steps to cultivate and intensify in our souls an ache for the beauty and perfection of the age to come. Not for the purpose of fueling theological speculation, but to equip us for life here and now. This is exactly what I believe Paul is doing here in chapter 13. He's 
fueling, he's cultivating, intensifying our soul's ache for the beauty of what is yet to come. Not just so that we can speculate of, oh, that one day when Jesus comes, what will happen? But so that we're equipped for the here and now and that we would use the gifts God gives us here and now. So let's dive in. Let's look at if this is actually the case. Does Paul actually show us here that the gifts are going to continue until he comes? There's a natural connection between these verses and the first seven verses. As you look at them, it's not just because verse 8 begins by talking about love never ending. The connection is actually far deeper. For if you recall back in verse, verses 1 through 3 that Paul was emphasizing the importance of love. And he did so by making a contrast between love and some gifts. If you look back there in verses 1 through 3, he says gifts of tongues, prophecy, and knowledge. So notice again here in verse 8 that he's doing the same thing. He picks up the contrast again, but this time he explains that love is permanent while the gifts are terminate. He says, love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. Paul's choice of which gifts to contrast with, contrast love with here, once again are directly relevant to the situation in Corinth. You remember, here in the church in Corinth, both the gifts of tongues and knowledge in general were highly esteemed. They were very important to this church. And so Paul points that out, but he also adds prophecy to the list because as we'll see in a couple weeks in chapter 14, he considers prophecy to be the most beneficial for the building up of the church. Now, this contrast was meant to once again underline for the Corinthians the superiority of love. For while the gifts are means or vehicles, writes Preben Bang, God uses to show his presence, love is the very essence and the expression of God's presence. And therefore, love will never end. Once again, Paul's making sure that the church doesn't forget about love. It's love that ought to dictate how these gifts function. But also know, notice how this reasoning here in these verses sets the stage for what he's about to address in the following verses, just how long the gifts will exist. He's saying, in effect, love is what you need as you continue to use the gifts you've been given until, what we read in verse 10, until the perfect comes, for then the partial, the gifts, will pass away. So while love has no expiration date, the gifts do. They will pass away. And here's that tension between the already and not yet. Paul is saying not only the gifts are not as essential as love, and so be loving, but then on the flip side, he's saying, keep using the gifts in love until they pass away, for they haven't yet. So you see what he's doing? He's not dismissing the gifts as no longer necessary, nor is he diminishing them. Paul's actually exalting love through the practice of the gifts. Exalting love through the practice of the gifts until they pass away. Now that phrase, pass away here, that we read twice in verse 8 and again in verse 10, it literally means to be abolished, to be rendered inoperative, to expire. They will want, there will be a time 
Paul says, when prophecy and knowledge will be destroyed, they will no longer be necessary. Now the phrase in the middle of verse 8 about tongues will cease is a, is a different verb Paul uses here, but most scholars believe he uses it here for nothing more than stylistic variation. And so he says they will pass away, they'll cease, pass away, that he could just have used that verb in the same as it relates to prophecy and knowledge. Now, some, though, have tried to argue that that verb there, and I know we're talking about grammar and verbs. Some of you are, are like glazing over. I mean, we're not high school English class and lit here. But that verb means, they say, that tongues will end in of themselves. And so knowledge and prophecy will pass away when the perfect comes, but tongues will just stop in and of themselves. That they won't, according to that interpretation, continue until, as Paul says here, the perfect comes. That interpretation, however, notes Carson, D.A. Carson and some others, interprets this verb rather irresponsibly. And for the voice of this verb does not mean that the subject will just stop under its own power, but rather that something would need to happen to make tongues cease, to stop. Hence what Paul says in verse 10, the perfect comes. And that would make the gift of tongues cease or stop. Again, we're talking some technical things here, but I'm doing that for a reason. Hold on here. See, Paul's argument here is that love will never end. He wants to be clear to the church in Corinth. Love will never end, so keep loving. But the gifts will one day end. Knowledge, prophecy, and tongues. Again, Paul's way to succinctly summarize all the gifts. All gifts will end. But when will that happen? When the perfect comes, he says in verse 10. And when, when is that? When will the perfect come? You're asking some good questions this morning. I'm glad you asked. Paul actually answers this for us in verses 11 through 12 with these two illustrations. So look at those illustrations again. So he says in verse 10, but when the perfect comes, the partial, again, he's pointing back to those gifts of prophecy, knowledge, tongues, the partial will pass away when the perfect comes. Then he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now, the truth is, there have been many interpretations of these illustrations here throughout the years. That when will the perfect come? And everybody's, again, trying to answer that in the debate over these spiritual gifts. One highly respected tradition interprets the coming of perfection to the coming of the day when Scripture is complete. That is, when the last inspired writings are gathered into the Bible, the canon of Scripture is then closed, then the gifts have ceased. And so they would argue this. They say, when Scripture is completed, then the church will have revelation through suited, thoroughly suited to her condition on earth. Our completed Bible is perfect in the sense that it is utterly sufficient revelation for all our needs. And we agree with that. Paul is saying, they continue, when the sufficient comes, the inadequate and partial will be done away. Tongues will vanish away. Knowledge and prophecies will cease at the time that the New Testament is finished. And so they say, now that the canon of Scripture is closed, the gifts have ceased. Knowledge, prophecy, tongues are over. We don't 
need those any longer. Another highly respected tradition argues that the, when the perfect comes, it refers to the maturity of the church. So they believe when the church reaches its full maturity, specifically at the end of the apostles' era, when the apostles fall off the scene, that is when there's no longer a need for the gifts. When everybody's in and the body is complete, that's the coming of the perfect. Now, obviously, those two traditions have a lot more to say, and there'd be a lot more that we could talk about, but I've just quickly summarized them, and that's all I'm going to do for time's sake this morning. I'm not going to say more, except that both of these views then see that the gifts have already ended. They would be classified as cessationists, so they would say the gifts are no longer functioning for the church today. The third view, however, is the view that the majority of scholars hold, and in my estimation is the most obvious from the text that we have in front of us this morning. And so not just because scholars like D.A. Carson, Piper, all those kind of guys say it so, but because I believe the text leads us to this conclusion, this is what I would hold to, that the perfect coming is the end of the age at the second coming of Christ. And in fact, Paul's already talked about that. Remember back in chapter 1, in verse 7, when he says, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for what? The revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, this is what I believe then is the most natural understanding of what we read here in these verses. Why? Once again, you're asking great questions. So look again at the first illustration here. In verse 11, here he's comparing the gifts of verse 8 to the experience of childhood. I spoke like a child, and some have argued that that is his way of saying tongues, that there's some babbling that's going on. Again, maybe that's true, maybe that's not. I thought like a child, knowledge. I reasoned like a child, prophecy. And then he compares the passing away of these gifts to adulthood. Basically, he's trying to say here, when I was a child, there were things I didn't know and I was immature, but then adulthood comes. Again, some argue that this then would give proof that Paul here is saying the perfect is the maturity of the church. For it seems as if Paul is saying he came to maturity as a man and then put aside in his maturity the childish or immature way. Again, that's not exactly what he's talking about here. As John MacArthur points out, for a Jewish boy, maturity wasn't a process. It was an instant. It was the bar mitzvah. One day you weren't mature, then you had your bar mitzvah, and then you were mature. So you see, it doesn't seem to fit the context of that day for Paul to be talking here about a process of maturity whereby the church would outgrow the gifts. Rather, in that day, they would have understood the movement from childhood to adulthood as a specific moment in time. Something happens, and now you are mature. The second illustration, I believe, is even more helpful in understanding why the perfect is, in fact, the second coming of Christ at the end of the age. Again, look at verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall see, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Mirrors in the ancient times would have been made from a, a polished metal like bronze. And so one's reflection in that would have been understandably dim. It would have been unclear like 
looking at your reflection in the hood of your car. Not at all like the mirrors that we have today. And so when Paul says here, looking into a mirror that's dim versus looking face to face, then the most natural understanding for the Corinthians would have been seeing Jesus at his return. As a matter of fact, that phrase face to face, which only occurs here in the New Testament in this chapter, is a phrase that's used several times throughout the Old Testament, referring to seeing God personally. And so we could go back to Genesis 32, Exodus 33, Numbers 12, Deuteronomy 5, Judges 6, and so on. But Paul's conclusion at the end of verse 12 makes this illustration even more clear. He says, now, again, there's the already, now I know in part. In other words, I can't can't see quite clearly, but then I shall know fully. Then I will see clearly even as I have been fully known, that is, even as God fully knows me and always has. Again, it seems fairly clear to me that the only time we will see face-to-face is when we see Jesus face-to-face and will fully know. And that is when the perfect comes at the end of the age when Christ returns again to take his bride home. Again, that's what John says in 1 John 3. When he writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is, face to face. Once again, both in 1 John 3 and then here in 1 Corinthians 13, we're hearing this tension between the already and not yet, the the now and the then. But Dan, what difference does this make? (laughs) If we're correct then in understanding that the perfect comes when Christ returns at the end of the age, so what? Once again, you're asking great questions. You guys are on fire today. What difference does this make? Well, if it's true then that the perfect coming is the end of the age when Christ returns, it then means that these gifts have not yet ceased. They haven't passed away yet. And if they haven't passed away, then what Paul is showing us here is in fact that God gives his grace gifts to us for our good and his glory until we see him face to face, until he comes again. And you see, as as D.A. Carson notes, if we get the issue of cessation right, of when these gifts would cease or have not ceased, We shall grasp the central points of this section. And I might add, we not only grasp the central points of this section, but these three chapters we're talking about in these nine weeks, if we grasp them and understand it correctly, they are compelling for us today. Oh, not just compelling for our intellectual grasp, so we can say our doctrine is correct, but for our applicational grasp, so that we are practicing the gifts in love. If we understand that the gifts haven't ceased and are still available for the church today, then we ought to ask ourselves if we're availing ourselves to them. Are we practicing what we are reading here? Are we pursuing love and earnestly desiring the spiritual gifts, as Paul will say in chapter 14, verse 1? Again, notice here, as he concludes this chapter, he says, 
as he makes this point from the continuation of the gifts until the end of the age at the return of Christ, he says, so now, okay, that's today, now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. We have verses in our English translation and chapter breaks. So there's that verse and chapter break at the end of verse 13, but those aren't inspired. And in, the, in this case, they often soften Paul's exhortation here to the church in Corinth. See, this is one train of thought here from Paul. He's saying, love never ends. The gifts, on the other hand, they will pass away. They'll pass away when the perfect comes. But until then, faith and hope and love will abide. The greatest of these, and so as you are pursuing these gifts with love, the greatest of these, as I've shown you, is love. So pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Earnestly desire them until that day, until the perfect comes. Paul's point here is that the gifts are a way for us to show love to one another. We're building up one another for the common good, the exaltation of Christ. So he doesn't just say, pursue love, but he says, earnestly desire the gifts. The gifts are one of these primary ways you can show love to one another when you use them correctly for the common good. Many of you probably remember as a teenager that there was one day in your life when your parents finally gave you the responsibility to watch over your siblings at home. Anybody remember that day? I was the oldest, and I, ha- I got that responsibility and abused that resp- <laughs> uh, responsibility. Uh, I knew, okay, I have these certain hours left until my parents are going to come home. And so they gave me responsibility, authority over my, my uh, siblings, and that's three other siblings. They also usually gave something to be done, right? Here's your chores, your list uh, of things to do before we come. If you were like me, you abused your authority for the first two and a half hours, two hours and 45 minutes or so. And then when you knew the parents were going to come for the last 15 minutes, you hurried really fast to get everything else done that you were supposed, supposed to get done. You see, what Paul's saying here is don't act like that. These are responsibilities. These gifts that I've given, that God has given to us, are responsibilities. And he's going to come, and they'll no longer be here, but use these responsibilities you've been given, you've been graced with, this ministry to one another, these gifts for the common good, that you need each other and the use of these gifts for growing. Use them responsibly. Use them in love and look forward forward to that day when those gifts will no longer be necessary. Look forward for that day when I come home and I bring the new heavens and the new earth here and then they will no longer be needed. You see, the gifts are a beautiful display of God's grace to us when we practice them in love. And so in closing this morning, let me summarize what we've learned from this passage like this. First of all, when we understand the already nature of the grace gifts. That is, while they are partial, yet they are given to us for now, today. That should inform our use of the gifts in humility, in gratitude, 
and in pursuing them, not presuming upon them. In other words, we humbly practice these gifts knowing that they are mere foretaste of the all-satisfying pleasures of the new heaven and the new earth. We practice these gifts out of an overwhelming appreciation for the grace bestowed upon us through the Spirit for the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we practice them with gratitude and humility, but we also pursue them, not presume upon them. We humbly, gratefully, and earnestly pursue and practice these gifts in love, but we do not presume upon God that He owes us anything, let alone these grace gifts. These are His to bestow. They're not ours to demand. But then we also understand the not yet nature of the grace gifts. That is, the perfect is still to come, and only then will we taste of the fullness of God's kingdom. And that ought to increase our use of the gifts for worship, for mission, and in anticipation. As we understand that our practice of these gifts is to magnify Jesus Christ and Him alone, not ourselves. And as He is glorified through the gifts, then our longing for His return intensifies. As we use these to worship and magnify Jesus, we we long for the beauty that will be on that day. But we also use them in, in mission. That is, as the Spirit empowers us to use these gifts, we can be confident that He is the one who transforms hearts from saying, as Paul says in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, hearts that have said Jesus is accursed, to transforming them to say Jesus is Lord. And yet he would use us and our gifting to proclaim his good news to those lost souls. We also use the gifts in anticipation. We, we practice these gifts, and we do so in anticipation of the perfect coming. For on that day... There will be no need for the gifts of tongues. For with one voice, all nations, all tribes, all tongues will stand around the throne singing in one voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. On day, there will be no need for gifts such as prophecy and knowledge. For we will know fully, even as we have been fully known. And on that day, there will be no need for healing. For as John writes in Revelation 21, He will dwell with them and neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. What a day that will be. The hymn writer says, When our Jesus we shall see, when we look upon His face, the One who saved us by His grace. And so we use the gifts, we pursue, we earnestly desire the spiritual gifts in love, desiring to build up one another, our brothers and sisters. We do so until that day when we see our Savior face to face. And so let us be a church that employs His grace gifts in love for His glory and the good of His church. Father, this morning, that is my prayer, that as we've understood from Your Word, what you teach us here, that we would be a church that is eager to see you face to face. We're eager for the perfect to come. When the partial will pass away, where there'll be no more need 
for these gifts because we will dwell with you. You will dwell with us in the fullness. So God, we are eager for that day, but until that day, we want to be a church that pursues love and earnestly desires the gifts because we know that's your plan for here and now, that we would build up one another in love as we speak to one another, as we serve one another, as we take the gifts that you have graced upon us and we employ those for the building up of your church. And so God, would you do that in each one of our hearts? Would you cause us to take a step back asking ourselves what what gifts have you graced us with and how are we using them right now? Are we using them in love to build up your church? And as we're using them, are we humble and grateful in our use of them? Are we not presuming upon them that, of course, we should be doing this because we have the gifts and God should give me that? No, make us humble and grateful in the use of these gifts, but also increase our anticipation that you would work through these to magnify your Son and to draw the lost to yourself. So, Father, make us a church that is known for love, known for our building up through the use of the gifts. 